What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. COVID-19 from the front lines continues today with Dr. Christina Madison. Dr. Madison is a past president of the Nevada Public Health Association with an intimate knowledge of the impact public policy and legislation can have on communities. She's a trusted and valued healthcare professional with over 12 years of experience in public health and over 15 years of experience as a pharmacy professional. She's currently an associate professor of pharmacy practice with Roseman University of Health Sciences. I enjoyed our conversation today as we really dove into the current status of COVID-19 in our nation and globally, as well as accurate sources of information that you as a listener can feel confident in accessing to learn more about COVID on your day-to-day basis. She also talked about the roles pharmacists can play upcoming medications in the pipeline for treatment and some just really important reminders for self-care near the end. So I encourage you to listen all the way to the end as she has a really fun practice that she does for herself that um, I personally want to jump on board with as well. Enjoy this episode. We'll be back with you soon with more from the front lines. All right. I'm so excited to have Dr. Christina Madison here with me today. It's really fun because I literally just interviewed another pharmacist. And so it's kind of a pharmacist day for me, which is super special because as you know, that's my background too. And so it was not planned to be all in one day, but it just happened that way. And I love how, how serendipitous that was. So I'm excited to have Christina here today. She is a public health pharmacist. I will have her explain a little bit about her background and what she currently does, but I'm just really glad that you're here. Christina, thank you for taking this time out today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, when you contacted me a few weeks ago, I, I was super excited. And then, you know, obviously at the time, uh, you know, COVID-19 was just kind of barely um, getting to the point where we were all starting to get more concerned because there hadn't really been a lot of cases in the United States. And so, you know, I was like, I didn't even think of it when I was like, oh yeah, I'll schedule it out a couple weeks out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, every day there's like something new. So it's like, you know, not even, you know, even just 24 hours, I feel like is such a full news cycle. And there's so much that's brand new about COVID. But I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, we decided to keep the interview dates, because I think there's a lot of really uh, interesting updates now. Yes, agreed. Yeah, when we scheduled this, it was a much lesser priority than it is now. Uh, so I'm glad that we got it on the books, because now it's quite the it's quite the priority in the U.S. and, of course, across the world. So let's start off by sharing a little bit about your background, where your um, sort of focus and study is and what you currently do. Yeah, so my um, background in history, so I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice with Roseman University of Health Sciences, and I started with them in 2007. And when I started with the university, I um, developed clinical pharmacy 
services with our local health department. So it was a brand new position. They'd never had a pharmacist. Um, I had not personally worked in public health at that time, but my background as a resident was in infectious disease and critical care. And so um, the health department was looking for assistance with their tuberculosis clinic, their sexual health clinic, and their immunization clinic. And then there was also the possibility of maybe doing a little bit of women's health and contraception. And so, uh, you know, I took the position um, and at the time the university was like, you know, if this isn't a, a good fit for you, we'll always find a different practice site for you since I'm 100% funded through the university. And it was like, honestly, one of the best decisions I ever made. I had the most amazing experience there and was there for a decade. Uh, and then uh, after I had my second child, I transitioned to a family medicine clinic that caters to the LGBTQ community. So um, I'm credentialed with the Academy of HIV Medicine. And so I wanted to kind of switch a little bit of focus. I still do public health, but I wanted to be able to do more for the um, sexual and gender minority population. And so that's why I transitioned to the clinic I am with now um, and doing a lot of harm reduction strategies. We're one of the largest providers of HIV prevention and gender affirming care in the state. So that's kind of where that, um, that transition was, but obviously I'm still doing a lot of public health. And then um, with everything going on with COVID-19, my decade of uh, experience with the public health department and going through, um, we had our own outbreak here in Vegas um, where we had a hepatitis C uh, issue with the surgery center. We also had some issues with um, some HIV transmission um, from some uh, un-aseptic un technique. And so I went through that with the health district as well as we went through H1N1, helped coordinate uh, lots of um, you know, mass vaccination campaigns. We did mass prophylaxis. And so I have incident command training and all that stuff because that's what I did at the health district. So it made sense. So now I'm being called upon as a... COVID-19 expert, uh, which has been um, an interesting transition. So I have been following it since December. Uh, and it was more just out of curiosity because I have gone through other pandemics and now it's even more relevant than um, I could have even anticipated at the time. Really great background in general, but certainly specifically in preparation for what's going on now. So your expertise is extremely appreciated, and uh, which is why I, I looked to you to come on to share insights because not all of us, you know, in healthcare period, but you know, there's a lot of us who just don't have the public health experience. And you coming from that, along with your infectious disease and critical care experience, is really uh, valued and valuable right now. So thank you so much for bringing that expertise to our listeners. So let's start out with, I guess, I think what we should start out with is what is the newest. So as you mentioned, day by day, we're basically uncovering a whole new set of, you know, issues, concerns, questions. And so we are taping this and this will go out pretty quickly right after we tape this, but March 30th. So as of March 30th, what is some of the, yes. the newest findings, concerns, questions, answers, if there are any, what's the newest? Yeah. So the biggest thing for us here in the United States is that um, we uh, have now um, gone from the 15 days to stop the spread um, and that has now been uh, extended. So uh, the initial guidance from the White House and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, that 15 days to slow the spread would have been ending today. 
um, if we had gone the 15 days, but um, there was a press conference uh, yesterday uh, and the president um, has now stated that that will extend until April 30th. So depending on what state you're in, um, you may be already under um, some either shelter in place rules or um, mandatory uh, stay at home orders. Um, I'll just tell you personally, I live in, in Nevada and our governor had issued a 30 day um, non-essential businesses all to be closed um, before the 15 day uh, um, to stop the spread um, commencement that came out um, by the federal government. And so for us, that extension to April 30th is only just a, like an additional maybe two weeks for us versus the rest of the country looks like it seems like it's an entire month. So, um, you know, I live and work in Las Vegas, Nevada, and all of our casinos are closed. All of our hospitality workers are out of work now. Um, so we've been pretty devastated from an economic standpoint. And so, uh, you know, the, the fact that they passed the stimulus bill on Friday, um, so people who are suffering right now will hopefully get some financial assistance um, probably within the next, uh, I believe, three weeks from the Treasury. So that's um, some hopeful news for people who are, are very fearful right now. Um, HUD, which is the housing authority, also has put a moratorium on any eviction notices or foreclosure notices. And a lot of the um, financial institutions have now um, said if you contact your lender that they will do forbearance and you can um, you know, defer your payments for the next 90 days and that there will be no late fees assessed. So um, I think that that's um, incredible news for a lot of people who've either lost one or both incomes in their household. So that's kind of the big news from just the global picture of COVID. Now, when we're looking at this from the epidemiologic side, uh, the April 30th date, um, it's at least until April 30th. And so if we don't take these uh, social distancing measures seriously and people don't stay at home, we're gonna just continue to see the rise in cases. And so right now, if you contrast you know, my state with what's going on in New York, um, you know, they're, they're in crisis mode. They keep seeing, um, you know, they're, they're seeing tripling of the number of cases. Um, they're putting together a field hospital right now. I just saw it go up this morning in Central Park. Um, the, you know, USS Mercy has just arrived this morning to help with the care of patients that don't have COVID-19 so that those patients can still be seen and the hospitals in New York um, can focus just on COVID um, because of issues with maybe cross-contamination and those people, you know, not being able to to work um, in other areas where there's non-COVID patients, right? Because you don't want to infect those that aren't already infected. So, um, you know, it, it's a cycle, right? And depending on where you're at in the, in the states, um, you may not have very many cases right now, but if your state is not implementing those social distancing, uh, you know, those provisions, you may see a surge in cases. And so until everybody has gone through their apex, we're not going to be able to get on the other side. So, uh, you know, it's at least until the 30th. Um, some of the epidemiologic projections that I saw wasn't until June. So um, I would say uh, th this is going to, it's going to 
to take some time, but we are going to get on the other side. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm telling everyone that this is temporary, but it is for the greater good. So because I've worked in public health for so long, I always say this is about the health of the many, not the health of the one. So when I treat one person's diabetes, obviously I'm helping that one person. But when I treat someone for an infectious communicable disease, I'm not just helping that one person. I'm in helping the entire community and I'm getting the community viral load down. So that's what you need to think about. You know, I think about my 90 year old grandmother that's in assisted living that I can't go and visit right now because of this virus. You know, I think about my mother who's in her 60s who, uh, for the most part, lives in my home because of my two small children. I think about them and what would happen to them if they got COVID. So don't just think about yourself. Think about those people who would have a more complicated case and unfortunately potentially may expire from this. And we are going to have deaths, but let's try to limit those as much as we possibly can. Really valuable information. The financial pieces are definitely, um, you know, hopeful and um, give us some some economic hope. And I, it's interesting because you have some, you have background in the care of those with HIV as well. And it's it's interesting the parallels, you know, when we're talking about how this looks versus, you know, and, and thinking about the the care of many, the care of the community, and and how your choices are going to potentially impact a lot of people and not just you or even just your immediate family or friends. So really impactful and important information. Let's talk a little bit about the medications and treatments in the pipeline. Obviously in the media and um, you know talked about quite a bit right now is hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin or also known as ZPAC. Um, and so I think that those are relatively well known at this point it's been talked about you know a decent amount some of the others though that are in the pipeline or that are that are moving quickly to to be out of the pipeline maybe they already are you can share um you know our our plasma and remdesivir so if you can kind of just share what some of these what do these treatments look like and how hopeful should we be that we will get to a point where they're widely available and successfully treating people yeah, so excellent question. And I just want um, your listeners to know that at this point, there's currently no FDA approved treatment or prevention for COVID-19. So as of right now, there's nothing that's been FDA approved. With that being said, there are multiple agents that are currently being investigated right now, including um, the compound that you just mentioned from Gilead, which is called Redemisvir. And so that um, product was originally um, being looked at in phase three trials for SARS. Um, but at the time that it got to that point, they didn't have enough patients to continue the study. And so that has gotten um, compassionate use um, in the United States and has been used in um, hospitalized critically ill patients in Seattle. Um, and I know that there's some other hospitals in the country that have also gotten um, some provisional use to use that product uh, in their hospitals. Um, to um, and then that actually is looking pretty promising because, um, as your listeners may or may not know, um, this virus is about eight percent genetically similar to SARS. Um, so there is some there. However, I will say that there is quite a bit of um, inflammation 
um, in addition to some alveolar damage that's occurring um, for these patients. And so this viral pneumonia, so it's very different from what we typically see with like influenza. So whenever we talk about influenza-related deaths, it's typically the secondary bacterial pneumonia that people get that they succumb to influenza from versus with this, this is a strictly viral pneumonia and it is causing a lot of inflammation um, in the lung tissue as well as fluid buildup. And so people, that's why they're getting shortness of breath. And it's a dry cough because it's not a bacterial infection. So that's why that's a dry cough and they get a very high fever because of the fact that it's a virus. So just kind of wanted to separate those out. And so when we look at the drug discovery um, areas, um, you know, redemisvir is an antiviral. Um, uh, it's a nucleotide. Uh, and then when we think about things like hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine being used in combination with things like azithromycin as well as zinc and high-dose vitamin C, that's really addressing the cytokine release um, because of the immune response associated with the viral pneumonia, um, as well as potentially the bacterial um, infection that could ensue after the body has now um, been immunosuppressed, um, in addition to some of those um, immunoboosting potentials of things like zinc and vitamin C. So those are all being looked at as being potential treatment options, and they are being used in different combinations and different dosing. And people are being um, actively enrolled in clinical trials so that we can say for certain that not only is this safe, but it is effective. Um, and with that being said, there has been an alert, so something called a HAN. Um, so it's the Health Alert Network, which is through the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So they just issued a HAN specifically specifically saying, do not use um, chloroquine for things for prevention, specifically associated with COVID-19. So this is not being used for prevention. This is only being used in the clinical setting in hospitalized patients and potentially being used in combination with other agents and supportive care. And so I just want people to know you can't just go to your doctor and ask for a prescription of chloroquine um, specifically for COVID-19. And a lot of states, boards of pharmacies and governors have now restricted and limited the use of this drug because people are thinking that they can just go and get it and it's going to help protect them against COVID-19. And that's not the case. Um, in addition to that, the people who actually are taking it for approved indications for this medication are not able to access it. So patients who have things like lupus. Um, so that's also a concern as well about, you know, maybe putting too much of our hopes into this therapy. Um, and then lastly, I did want to say there are some biologics in the uh, in the pipeline right now. Some of them still just have chemical names. We're not even um, using their um, uh, their brand or generic name yet. And then there's a couple other um, biologics that are also in the in the um, pipeline, but very very. Um, uh, novel at this point. They're very new. Um, they're just barely being looked at just for safety right now and not even looked at for efficacy. And then, of course, we have convalescent plasma. So FDA did uh, come out and say that they that you can use convalescent plasma. The only thing that's really limiting that is the fact that the antibody test, in order to determine if somebody has the antibodies against COVID-19, they're not able to scale that up quite yet. And so um, it is in limited use, and it's an investigational drug 
application that you would have to approve for. And then you would have to know that the patient tested positive for COVID and then you would be able to use their plasma and it's only being used in seriously ill and critically ill patients. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, we did just get a brand new rapid test that came to the market from Abbott, which is really great because it, it works on its existing technology. So it's something that doctor's offices already have that they use for their rapid strep and their flu testing. And you can get a positive result in as little as five minutes and a negative result in as little as 13 minutes. Mm -hmm. So there are some things on the horizon that is looking promising. But I think the next evolution to this is going to be that antibody test. And it's very similar to what we saw with HIV. So initially, the virus was isolated and identified. And then we came up with the antibody test. Then we started screening the blood supply. So it's very similar, the parallels I see with this and HIV. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found that to be really interesting too. And and when I had you coming on, I was thinking that that you know it's it, it's good to point that out because even though we have not seen this virus, there are similarities that we can learn from and utilize the knowledge that we have applied to other types of viral diseases like HIV. So really very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about information gathering and accessing information. You being on sort of the front lines of public health. Um, I'm sure have had to screen out and be selective about the places and locations in which you gather your information because you are highly sought after to then provide and disseminate that information. And so you have to be certain that the information is accurate. So for the public who, um, are being bombarded, you know, every email, every news station, every website, everybody's yeah to get, you know, SEO over, over COVID-19. What are some of your tips, specific places to go for the public to get the most accurate information? So I, I'll tell you what I do. Um, so the first thing that I do is um, I look at my state and local health authority. So uh, wherever you're at, because right now there's no federal uh mandate as far as like closing businesses and the social distancing other than the, the 15 days to stop the spread. Um, there's no mandate across the country that everybody needs to be sheltering in place. So because of that, I've really been um, going first and foremost to my local health authority because I do do a lot of local media and a local um, news stations and our public radio station and thing like that. So uh, typically, I start there. Um, and then obviously we had our press briefing yesterday um, from the president. I also regularly listen to the WHO's press conferences because those are very helpful because that's talking a lot about what's happening in countries that have already hit their peak or almost at their peak. And so it's kind of telling to see, you know, what, what we may be in store for here ourselves. Uh, and then obviously the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, WHO, or World Health Organization. Uh, and then, you know, I'm, I'm making sure that whatever source that I look at, if I do see something that looks interesting, um, I'm making sure, you know, is it a reputable source? Um, all the journal articles that I'm looking at, you know, are they reputable journals? And so a lot of the, the first sets of information that came out as far as like demographics about the patients that did, um, 
have data collected on them from Wuhan came out of a, a JAMA article that was published a few weeks ago. So JAMA came out um, with some pretty interesting data. There's a couple of studies that have come out of France um, looking at treatment, so a few case studies. And so, you know, just making sure that you're looking at that primary and secondary literature to see, you know, if this was, you know, if you were in pharmacy school, would you, uh, would you put this as one of your references and would your, your faculty member tell you, you know, is this not a reputable source, you know, so, you know, that, I feel like those, those things apply, you know, for any of us who are, work in clinical pharmacy, you know, we're always practicing evidence-based medicine, and so we're all kind of amateur drug information specialists, um, and so I think that background and that history that we know that we're the drug experts, like, we always double-check you know, that the sources that we're looking at are, are tried and true. And so FDA, EPA, uh, you know, those are all government websites. And, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking at them um, as, you know, where are they going? And then also our pharmacy organizations. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, our national pharmacy organizations have all come together and they've put together a position statement saying, you know, use pharmacists it to the full uh, level of their licensure and their expertise. Like we can help. Don't forget about us. We're not just helping you with your, you know, with your supply chain, which is what Mitch McConnell said when he was on the Senate floor before he passed the bill. We're not just helping with supply chain. We're helping with patient care. You know, if, if we do have a rapid test that can be available and when we do get more testing available, let pharmacists do that. Let pharmacists handle some of these chronic medical conditions that don't require a doctor's visit. Let us do telehealth and telemedicine so that we're not inundating the healthcare system and these people don't have to try to get emergent care. We can take care of them. Let pharmacists do what we do best, which is therapeutic management. And let's leave the hospitals and the urgent cares for people who truly need it that are sick with COVID-19. Yes, um, I completely agree. And I was going to ask, you know, what your what your ideas are and visions are for pharmacists role in this. And you've kind of laid that out. And I think that that's really <laughs> important for a lot of people to know. I think for people who aren't necessarily as knowledgeable about the shift in pharmacy you know, over the last decade plus, you know, pharmacists really have, have, if I say I'm a pharmacist, most people assume that it is in the retail setting because that's historically where most of us have been. And so um, it's, it's a really impactful and important conversation to have that pharmacists roles have changed and that we are now at a time when a lot of healthcare professionals, including pharmacists and a lot of times, especially pharmacists can step forward and take on roles in in this type of a scenario that we haven't had in our lifetime to, to, you know, help take off the burden from a lot of the other healthcare professionals. I mean, it, um, it only makes sense that we all kind of play our role and utilize our knowledge and skill set. So I completely agree. And thank you for sharing some of those, um, important, you know, three letter, three letter websites that people can just pay attention to, you know, um, the yeah. FDA, EPA, WHO, and CDC. I think that, um, it can become very overwhelming for people. And if they have places to just focus their attention on and, um, stop necessarily getting too bogged down because you can read the same story in multiple places with a different twist with potential different levels of accuracies. And um, so just knowing where to go to get that information. What are some of your sort of just final words of wisdom, pearls of wisdom for people, lay people and healthcare professionals as we move from this place that we're in now and as we move forward, what are some of your pieces of advice for 
for the, the isolating part, the social distancing part, but also just um, staying aware, but also paying attention to self-care and not um, spiraling down the, the drain of, of stress. So I'll, I'll give you the floor for final words of wisdom. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, first things first is like self-care is, and self-love is so important right now. And I want to make the distinction between social distancing does not mean social disengagement. So I'll give you myself as an example. So my 40th birthday was a week and a half ago. And obviously because we're all social distancing, I was unable to celebrate, um, in the traditional manner. So I did a virtual birthday party and I streamed it on three different platforms. So I had Twitter, I had Instagram, I had Facebook, and then I also had some people on Zoom. So, you know, getting creative, right? Because we don't want people to think that just because I can't physically be around you and be in the same physical space as you, that doesn't mean that I don't want to engage and be connected to you. And so I think that that's really important. So, you know, social distancing, physical distancing does not mean social disengagement. So don't think that being in your home and being around your family unit, which by the way, this should be giving us time to pause and to think about what's truly important in our lives. Family, friends, pick up the phone, call people, um, you know, FaceTime with them, Zoom chat with them, Skype with them. You know, these are the things that we thought we were too busy to do because we were too busy running out of the house and going to school events and, you know, this kid's soccer practice or baseball practice this is a time for us that silence that that calm we should be thinking about what's most important to us and don't forget about your self-care so in the mornings I get up and I take a bath I sit in there I disconnect I have no phone no social media nothing for an hour that's how I start my day with that relaxation I'm not saying that everyone has that ability, but you have to do something for yourself, whether that's, you know, drawing something, do something for yourself. And then if you are on social media, make sure that your, your diet, your social media diet is a healthy diet. Okay. So don't go down that train where, you know, you're just listening to, you know, all the negativity and all the banter. And, you know, if you have friends that are posting things that you obviously see that are not helpful and, and are destructive, you can put them on mute. You can still be friends with them, but you don't have to keep seeing all their stuff in their feed. Right. And I would limit the amount of time that you are on social media. We are in, in addition to being in a pandemic, we are in an infodemic. And it's a tsunami of news and there's so much of it and it is really impairing people's mental health. Make sure that you are limiting the amount of time that you're on social media for the good of everyone. Okay. And last but not least, stay home, stop the spread, save lives. Perfect. Absolutely. Perfect. And uh, I need to get on the bath for an hour trend. So I'm going to work on that. Um, happy it is the best. <laughs> and uh, happy 40th. I celebrated that last year. Yeah. So um, happy 40th. Before we close, I would love for people to know where they can find you. So give us some of those places so that they can uh, learn more and follow you on social media. Because um, clearly, as you have articulated through here. You are compiling the most accurate information and you might be a great source for them to watch and watch and follow. 
Absolutely. So um, most of my um, handles, sorry, as you can hear, that's probably my child down there. Um, hashtag mom life. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, at the public health pharmacist, so that's Instagram, Facebook, uh, and then um, also I have a YouTube channel and I actually just started my own podcast. They're all under the at the public health pharmacist. And then I'm on Twitter and it's public health RX, but pretty much everything else um, at the public health pharmacist, or you can just go to my website, which is the public health And you can just click on whatever icon you want and it'll take you right to that uh, social media page. Fantastic. I will have all those links in the show notes too. So you won't miss it in case you're listening and want to catch it later. Thank you so much, Christina, for sharing your time, your insights. I know your family is uh, dying to have you back. So thank you so <laughs> much for carving out this time and for being a source of accurate and valuable information. We appreciate it. My pleasure. I so appreciate Dr. Madison coming on with me today and sharing with all of you her insights, what she knows to be the most current and accurate information and guiding us along our journey to obtaining accurate sources of information as we move forward and caring for ourselves. So thank you so much, Christina, for sharing your time. I will see you here again next time with more from the front lines. Be safe and stay well.